You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, this is Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about fevers. Joining me is Dr. Paul Offit, who's the director of the Vaccine Education Center, an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at CHOP, and many other things that we don't have time to go into, but thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Katie. So let's start with just a definition of what we mean by fever. So I usually tell newborn parents that anything 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or higher is considered a fever, but how does that number change by age and what what really should we be calling fever? No, I think that's a fair definition. I think anything greater than 38, two degrees centigrade, 100 and a half uh, Fahrenheit is fair. I mean, that's the FDA's definition of fever, interestingly. Mm -hmm. Certainly children who are younger have the capacity to make higher fever than do people when they're older. But I think that's a fair definition. So what about parents who say that 99 degrees is a, a fever for their child? Are there any relative fevers? Are there kids whose set points are lower? Or should we just consider that a universal? definition? I think it's it just sort of our own sanity. I think we should consider that a universal definition. I don't think 99 degrees Fahrenheit is a fever, no right. matter what parents might claim. Right. So why does the body raise the temperature to create a fever when we're ill? Because our immune system works better at pretty much all levels. Um, neutrophils are able to uh, travel to sites of infection, ingest and kill bacteria more efficiently at a higher temperature. Um, B cells make antibodies more efficiently at a higher temperature. Helper T cells help B cells make antibodies more efficiently at a higher temperature. Every aspect of our immune system works better at a higher temperature, which is why every animal that walks, crawls, swims, or or flies on this face of this earth for the last 600 million years has been able to make fever, either as ectotherms or endotherms. That's interesting. I didn't realize, I didn't even think about animals making fevers too. So is there a fever number that's too high? Is there such a thing as too high or can the body kind of crank the thermostat as high as it needs to? Right, so there are two kinds of fever. There's physiological fever, which is to say fever that you generate in response to infection. Um, no, and, and the answer to, to the question, there is no. I mean, sometimes, you know, malaria will cause fevers as high as 104, 105. It's mm-hmm. not, as long as the pathogen doesn't infect the brain, there is no uh, negative consequence to fevers. Mm-hmm. You can't have an, a, a physiological fever that's too high. That's not true of environmental fevers. Right. So, so, for example, you know, the person in the military or the football player um, who's out there on a hot day, you know, wearing heavy uh, clothing and that doesn't allow him, that person, to dissipate heat through sweating, there you can suffer an environmental fever. And that about 600 people actually die of heat stroke every year in this country, and sometimes children when they're left in cars in a right. warm day and the, the windows are up. That's an environmental temperature, and that can be too high. Right. Okay, that's a good distinction for us to make. But the fever for when you're sick can't necessarily be too high. And in fact, like you were mentioning, some parents worry that if they don't treat the fever, their child could have brain damage or a seizure. So. Is there any evidence that treating fevers prevents a seizure? Well, certainly febrile seizures are common. I mean, they'll happen up to 5% of children, up to roughly five years of age. Um, They're hard to watch, um, but they are not associated with long-term sequelae. So there are no no differences in in children who do or don't have febrile seizures in terms of developmental uh, aspects, et cetera. So 
Yet, while it's true that fever can cause febrile seizures, um, it's really not the height of the fever so much as the rapid rise in fever, which mm -hmm. is why giving antipyretics uh, or fever-reducing medicines in that setting doesn't work. I mean, there have been uh, many, many studies, two, at least two dozen studies that have looked at whether or not giving antipyretics to prevent febrile seizures works, and it doesn't, because it's really not the height, but rather the rapid rise, which often can't be anticipated. Right. You don't know that they had the fever or that the fever's on its way up to even try to treat it. So since we talked about how fevers have a function when you're ill, does treating the fever then worsen the illness? Yes, yes, and yes. Okay. I, I think there, the, the, it, we started with animal model studies. It was famous Matthew Kluver studies done in experimental animals, specific lizards, where he would inject them with a potentially fatal dose and allow the animal to go into relatively hotter or cooler chambers mm -hmm. and, and preventing the, the, these essentially uh, exotherms that they can't generate their own fever. They have to go to the top of a rock and sun themselves to increase right. their temperature. Um, the degree to which they weren't allowed to increase their, their internal temperatures, the degree to which they were more likely to die. So there were all those studies. And then those studies have been done now in fish and mice and rats and rabbits. And every time that study has been done, it's shown that survival is directly dependent on the ability to generate fever and the degree to which fever is ablated by antipyretics in experimental animals worsens illnesses or increases mortality. Mm -hmm. Now there have been probably about 15 studies or so done in people where you, you again look at people who do or don't get uh, antipyretics for illnesses. Probably the, the classic uh, one in pediatrics was children who had chickenpox infections mm -hmm. that were prospectively randomized to receive uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen or not. Those who received the acetaminophen uh, had disease for longer and took a longer time to crusting of their lesions. So it's also been true for people experimentally uh, inoculated with rhinoviruses, people who allowed themselves to experimentally be infected with, infected with Shigella, with influenza, again and again and again. Fever is adaptive. We make fever for a reason, and it's not to keep, you know, uh, antipyretic makers in business. It's in order for us to survive. It, it is an adaptive part of our immune system, and to ablate it, is to uh, to take uh, to to try and is to work against basically what nature is trying to do to help you fight your infection better. Our immune system works better at a higher temperature. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is at a higher temperature you pay a metabolic cost for that, right. and we only want to pay that cost when we have to. So what happens physiologically when we treat fever with antipyretics? When we treat fever with antipyretics, then we lessen our immune response's capacity to respond. Um, so whether it's neutrophils or B cells or T cells, that has been redundantly shown that when you treat with fever, you lessen the capacity of that, of that individual to make antibodies to that particular pathogen. I think we all recently read a lot of studies about antipyretics and vaccines and that there can, you can blunt the immune response if you pre-treat and we try not to do that in primary care, but what about after the vaccine is given? I know a lot of parents will go home and give Tylenol or Motrin or something on their own, is there any harm in doing that? Yes, also a bad idea. I mean, think about it. You're, you're injected with, say, a live attenuated viral vaccine. That vaccine will reproduce itself slowly and relatively inefficiently over the, a few days period of time, mm -hmm. um, during which you're making an immune response. And you make a better immune response the degree to which your temperature is raised. So to blunt that temperature is to blunt that immune response. Mm -hmm. There have been two large studies that have been done, one in the Czech Republic, one in Australia, that has clearly shown that that's true. So it's one of the, the dumber things we do in medicine is, is 
patients to give antipyretics either before or after children get a vaccine because it blunts the response. And if after the first, usually you get a priming series and then you get booster doses. Right. If you give it during the primary series, um, you generate, a, one will typically generate a certain frequency of memory B and T cells that's fixed so that when you boost later on, you're still working with that fixed population of memory B and T mm. cells. And so, so, so you don't make it up later. In right. other words, so you still have that, that primed series. So right. um, do what, uh, what we're intended to do by nature, which is to let us have fever. And that's the same even in, in the inactivated vaccines as it is the live? Same thing. Mm -hmm. still takes a few days to generate response. Why did you know this? I mean, you'll get, right. it really takes about seven days to really before you see sort of an effective IgG response in the circulation. Right. What about treating fever to make a child feel better? One of the arguments could be that when children have high fevers, they don't want to eat or drink, and we worry about them getting dehydrated. So is there a strategy in terms of trying to make them feel better when they have this fever without causing harm? Yeah, there's no doubt about the fact that, that you pay a, a physical price for fever. Um, you sweat, um, you know, you shiver, um, you have headaches, you have some good muscle pain. So, so we do not feel good when right. we have fever. And I think when we treat fever, we think that we're making the infection better, but we're not. We're just making this one symptom of the infection better. And when we do that, we do lessen the body's capacity to respond to that um, infection. So, so I, I think that when you have fever, you are meant to uh, encourage that fever. You're, you want to have fever. You, that's, your, your hypothalamus is just being reset at a higher temperature. Right. And so you want to lie in bed and you want to put a log on the fire. You want to put you know, your pajamas on or put a hot water bottle. You, you wanna, your body wants you to increase temp your temperature. They want you to lie in bed, not go out there and, and infect everybody else, right. which is sort of what you do when you treat fever. Yeah. So you right. feel better. So you're willing so you more to the, the presenteeism problem. But um, so, so in terms of feeling better, yeah, I think you just do what you can to make someone feel better, realizing that, that fever is part of all this. So mm -hmm. just make sure they get lots of fluids and you know and rest, take it as easy as possible, not strain themselves. But I do think you we should have a much healthier respect for fever than mm -hmm. we do. And things like supportive care, taking maybe a, a cool lukewarm bath or putting a washcloth on your head, like those things that families sometimes do to help support fever. But that's who lowers the temperature. So yeah, I, I would I would say and people also the, the cooling blankets and stuff. I, I think generally people in our hospital hate that and mm -hmm. probably for a good reason because mm -hmm. it's you're working against nature. Right. Great. So when should we, if ever, use antipyretics? So I, I think for certainly for patients in our hospital who have. Um, you know, say chronic lung or chronic heart disease or metabolic deficiency, where they, they are going to be much less able to handle the roughly 12% increase in basal metabolic rate that comes with every degree centigrade of, of, of temperature above the baseline temperature, mm -hmm. who, who are less likely to handle that. One could make an argument for, for mm -hmm. doing it in that setting. But I think for an otherwise healthy child, mm -hmm. you should be able to hydrate them well enough so that you sh it shouldn't be a problem. Right. Great. Should we treat unvaccinated children with fevers differently? So we typically will say that a fever can last two or three days with most viral illnesses um, or even with some of the bacterial infections we see in primary care like otitis. We expect a few days of fever and then symptoms will improve. But should we be thinking earlier or more aggressively about investigating the fever in kids who, who are unvaccinated? Yes, 
the big one is the streptococcus pneumoniae. Mm-hmm. So um, pneumococcus can cause meningitis, pneumococcus can cause sepsis, and I think that were I to see a child who I know is not immunized, that would be the first thing I would worry about. I mean, haemophilus influenza type B causes the same problems, but we have done a pretty good job of virtually eliminating haemophilus influenza type B from this country, but that too should be in our minds. So yeah, sure, I think that, that now you're you're worried about something normally you wouldn't have to worry about, it, and there's not a year that goes by in our hospital where we don't see a case of pneumococcal meningitis because a parent had chosen not to vaccinate their child. So when we're getting phone calls from parents about fever, after about how many days of fever should we get concerned and make sure that we bring them in to see them? I think as long as the child looks relatively well between fevers. I mean, you usually have fever, fever comes down, fever comes up. As long as the child looks pretty good when their fever is down, then I think you have your answer. I mean, and sometimes that's used as a diagnostic sign. People will treat uh, with antipyretics to see how the child looks when their fever is down. The notion being that if you have invasive bacterial disease, sepsis, meningitis, uh, bacterial pneumonia, that you're not going to look good even when your fever is down. So, so I, I understand that. But again, the fevers usually come down anyway, and so you'll get your chance to look anyway. Right, so you have a, a daily kind of pattern of fever. A lot of people say they spike in the afternoon or evening. So you're saying that if the rest of the day when they don't have a fever, they look better, that's a reassuring Yes. Sign. Great. So when um, our nurses are out on the front lines receiving parent phone calls, what advice would you give them in terms of just generally counseling parents about the fever? To tell them to, to, to calm down about the fever. The mm-hmm. fever is, is, is part of our immune system. It's physiologic. It's natural. And it helps our body fight infection. And, and not to worry. I think we do sort of create uh, some bad messages regarding fever, that there's a number above which it's too high and dangerous. That's not true. I think the notion is that, um, you know, that, that, that children who have fever are, are sicker than other children or those with higher fever are sicker than other children. It's not true. It's just all part of your immune response. That's why babies or young children can make higher levels of fevers because they have more vigorous immune responses. Mm-hmm. It's all good. Great. And I think, you know, at least in this hospital, um, I, I see that uh, sort of there are a number of pillars on which uh, sort of nursing notes stand. One of them is thermoregulation. It's like we just can't allow people to have a moment of fever in their <laughs> hospital. You know, we're, we're sort of, you know, giving them acetaminophen and ibuprofen right. and sort of, you know, going every two hours because we just can't allow them to have fever. And I, I do think it does far more harm than good. Mm-hmm. I think it's natural for parents to want to try to do something to help their child feel better when they're sick. And certainly handing them some Tylenol or Motrin makes you feel that you're making them better. But I think it's helpful that you have educated us that we might need to rebrand fevers a little bit and think of them as what's actually helping their child get better. Right, yeah, and I'll give you a specific example. There was a child who came into the hospital who had uh, septic thrombophlebitis, who, uh, who was sick. I mean, this was with uh, methicillin-resistant staph aureus or MRSA, and that bacterium had traveled to lungs, traveled to brain, its joints, bone. He was sick, and, and mm-hmm. I sat down with the, uh, the parents because they were so vigorously treating his fever. And, you know, you're giving vancomycin, but it's not exactly a wonder drug. He'd been bacteremic for days and said, let's just back off a little bit on our treatment of fever. And they completely bought into it. I mean, they they bought into it. I mean, we talked to the nurses about this. And so we backed off on his his, uh, vigorous anti-fever medicine. And he did did well. I mean, I'm not saying it's just because of it, but it's certainly why cripple his immune system that's trying so desperately to rid itself of this bacteria. Right. Let the immune system do its job. Let the immune system do its job. Exactly. 
Well, thank you so much. I think this is definitely something that people are going to have to readjust their thinking to, but we are happy to educate the pediatrician population who's listening. And I know that our nurses are doing a great job also trying to help parents understand fevers better. So thanks for that. Sure. You know, I, th I think what we're asking for is a cultural shift, and, and that's really hard. This is ingrained. I mean, I think ever since aspirin was invented in 1895, the notion is we're doing good, and right. doctors want to do good. They want to help. And now saying back off from this antipyretic therapy is asking for just this completely different way of looking at our, our culture of medicine, which is a lot to ask. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for getting us started. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. Thank you.